morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in a study through the book of Galatians in the coming months, so we will continue to turn to Galatians, and then you have Ephesians, and you have Philippians, and you have Colossians, so Galatians is where we will be. Philip Yancey, who is arguably one of the, the finest writers in Christianity over the last 30 to 40 years, he tells a story of a comparative world religions conference that was being held in, in Oxford, um, not Oxford, Mississippi, not Ole Miss, uh, <laughs> across the way. So Oxford. Um, so the story goes, as Yancey tells it, that they were trying to discern in this conference what the unique contribution of Christianity was in the conversation of world religions. Was there one aspect of Christianity that made a contribution that no other world religions had ever made that set Christianity apart? So one scholar said, well, maybe it's the incarnation that God would come and dwell in the midst of humanity. And another person said, well, there are other world religions that speak of a form of the incarnation, certainly not exactly as Christianity has done, but that's not wholly unknown in other world religions. Well, someone else said, well, maybe it's the resurrection. And again, someone said, well, the Christian doctrine of the resurrection is different, yet it's not wholly unknown in other world religions. So the way Yancey tells the story there in Oxford, C.S. Lewis happened to stroll into the room. And so we asked, well, what's the conversation about here? And they posed the question to Lewis. What was the one aspect of Christianity that was unique as a contribution to world religions? And as Yancey tells the story, Lewis did not hesitate. He immediately said, well, that's simple. It's grace. It's grace. And they began to bat that idea around and they came to some sense of conclusion that, that what is unique about Christianity is this offer of God's unmerited favor and love to us, not based upon our works, not based upon what we do. That within world religions, you have this emphasis upon man's effort to discern the will of God and to discern his, his love given to us. And Buddhism, you have some sort of this, some sort of form of this with the Eightfold Path. In Hinduism, you have the doctrine of karma. You have within Islam the Muslim code of the law. And Lewis said that with Christianity, what is wholly unique about this is that only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. That only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. And when you pervert that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you lose the very heartbeat of Christianity. And that is the theme of the letter that we have before us in the book of Galatians. Six chapters, 149 verses that are articulating and defending passionately the doctrine of God's grace. Unbridled passion is represented in these words here. Even righteous anger at the thought that the gospel of grace would be perverted or polluted. You, you can hear it in the opening words of Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. Just read in your copy of God's word, Galatians 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you, a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him again be accursed. For I am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians is this book that introduces to us this resounding theme of grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone. The pillars of the Reformation are forged in this very book that we have before us in the book of Galatians. It was one of Martin Luther, the great German reformer's favorite books that, that sold to him the, the very heartbeat so passionately of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we introduce ourselves to this book, I think it's helpful for us to introduce four questions, answer four questions as somewhat of an overview of the book, but also an introduction into these first 12 verses that help whet our appetite for what is going to occur in this book, but also intersects very strategically with our own world. The first question I want us to, to pose and then to answer this morning is, who is Paul addressing in this book? Who is Paul addressing? Well, it seems real clear in verse 2 here, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Notice how Paul is not greeting them with this warm embrace. He immediately gets down to the brass tacks of what they're doing wrong, how quickly they've left, how quickly they are, have deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ here. Now, who are those that have quickly left the message of Jesus Christ? Who are these individuals that Paul was writing to? Well, it's helpful for us to see that Paul clearly states it's the churches of Galatia, but he doesn't give us the historical context to be able to connect those dots. So we have to look at the book of Acts and see how the book of Acts would intersect with the book of Galatians here. And many scholars would believe that the churches that Paul's addressing were churches that he founded in what was called the first missionary journey, his first missionary journey. Uh, in your margin, you can write Acts chapter 13 to Acts chapter 14 that gives you a little bit of the historical narrative behind this epistle that we have before us here. Let me just give you the cliff notes this morning. So when you go back to Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the church in Antioch. They set sail from Antioch to Cyprus. Then they go in their missionary endeavors to the mainland of Asia Minor, and they make their way across the Tarsus Mountains, coming to the region that was known as Pisidian Antioch. Again, Acts 13, Acts 14. They preach to Jews and Gentiles alike, 
the Jewish audience especially rejected the message and ultimately says, you are not welcome to stay here. That led them down what was a very uh, well-traveled commerce highway called the Imperial Highway, three strategic centers and cities that were on that were Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Most scholars would believe that the churches that Paul is addressing here, churches in the southern region of Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, they received the message, set up churches, Paul and Barnabas do, but they, they, they're not interested in having 45-year tenures here. They have an apostolic mission to set up churches, appoint elders, and move on. Eventually, Paul would want to get to, to Rome. So what happens is, is Paul, Barnabas, set up churches, preach the gospel, appoint elders, leaders in the church. They leave and out behind them as they're packing up the U-Haul, getting out of town. So are false teachers coming in and attacking two primary points. One is the message that Paul had preached. The second is the authority of the messenger. We're going to come back to these themes here, but it's helpful for you to see how verse 1 and verse 12 uh, coincide with Paul saying, hey, listen, my authority is not based upon man. The message that I've received that has called me to you is I have received it in the authority of the one who called me by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is positioning his authority not in a council of men, but rather in the call of God upon his life here. Who is Paul addressing? Second question, who are they deserting? It's interesting. We, we have kind of rhetorical strategies that you get before an audience of people. You have some introductory remarks. You might say a little joke. You try to have an icebreaker, build a little bit of rapport with your audience. You might get to some difficult things down the road, but you want to start with the positive, make your way maybe to the constructive criticism that's coming. Not with Paul. I mean, he, he's not wasting any time. I mean, he gets, you get really five verses in, you have an amen, and then he says, now for what I want to write you about here. In verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. Who did they desert? Notice that there, Paul is not saying, you deserted me, you deserted Barnabas, you deserted your fellow Christians. You deserted the church. He is saying you deserted the very one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, which is God the Father. That phrase in the English Standard Version, the version that you have in the pew racks, the version that you have on the screens here, that, that phrase can be translated changed. It can be translated perverted. It can be translated desert. You can desert pervert, change, and that's what we have in the English phrase, quickly deserting here. So what Paul is saying to pervert the message of grace, to change the message of grace, is to desert the God of the gospel. To add to the gospel is to ultimately subtract from your faith. I think this is important. There's a temptation, even at the outset of this book, to say, well, this is great historical information for us to know about the first century church and all the things that first century Christians were struggling with and move on with just sort of like an intellectual historical exercise. But notice that's not where the Word of God would want us to leave this because what Paul is saying is something that ultimately swims against the current of our own cultural streams. Paul is saying there is one gospel, not a multitude of gospels. 
You can't just add to it what you see befit to add to it and then ultimately bless it as the truth. And we live in a culture of spirituality by addition. We live in a culture that will amen your passionate belief and whatever you want to believe in and that ultimately the arbiter of truth is that you believe it and that you think it is right. We're very comfortable in our culture saying, I have found this spiritual truth to be true for me and hence that it is true for me you must accept it as true for anyone and everyone. We're, we're comfortable in our streams there. That, this is how, this, this is the, the, the way that cultural streams flow in, in our world now, or especially in, in American context now. And so you will hear people say things like, I love God, but I'm really not a follower of Jesus. I love God, but I really believe that there are many myriads of pathways to a relationship with God. And that will get a lot of amens in our culture. It is spirituality by personal choice. It is spirituality by addition. And who are you to say that what a person believes is actually wrong? And here is Paul writing to these Christians that what you're trying to add to the gospel is actually subtracting from the very message of the gospel and you have deserted the God of the gospel. The first iteration of Danielle and I living in Birmingham was 18, 19 years ago. I was a student at Beeson Divinity School right down the street at Sanford University. And one of the things that you immediately do in seminaries, you have a group of guys that you find, or I did have a group of guys, and we said, we got to find some of the Birmingham places for lunch to go to. And so one of our favorite places to go to in those lunch breaks were, was out to Nikki's West. I still, everybody know, uh, 11 o'clock service knows about Nikki's West, right? Okay, we got some, okay, if you know about Nikki's West, can you say amen? Okay, I'm preaching to, I'm preaching to my kind of people right here. There we go. So I love Nikki's West. Even coming back 19 years, one of the first places I wanted to go is Nikki's West. I wanted to see all the changes that had happened at Nikki's West. <laughs> all of the modernization. Not a thing has changed. Nothing has changed there. The menu, it doesn't need to change. And so, so one of the things I love about Nikki's West is, is when people come to visit us, I love taking really indecisive people to Nikki's West. <laughs> I, I, love, I love a person who, who wants to ask a question like this. Can I have a sample of that? I, I, I love, you know, you'd get thrown out of that place stopping the line. Nikki's West is a place that you best know what you want to order before you pick up that tray. There's no nonsense. None of this Paul's in the line. It is a masterful portrait of efficiency, and you need to know what you want before you get in that line, and there's a whole lot that you could want. I mean, there's just like endless vegetable options, and they even count macaroni and cheese as a vegetable at Nikki's West right there. Banana pudding's a fruit there. So, you, I mean, you get, you get, it's just, I love, I love the, the way they think of food there. And so, you want the Greek baked chicken, you can get that. If you want beef stew, you can get that. If you want you know, fried chicken, you can get that. And you can take a group of 10, 15 people there. There's, the last thing in the world that they're offering to you is one option. They're offering you a myriad of options. And it's great. And it's a wonderful model of commercial efficiency. You 
are the sole beholder of what you want to get for lunch. Here's the problem. Oftentimes, we take that analogy, the more the merrier, and we bring it into our spiritual life. And what can occur is we can fall under the false belief that your religious faith is you picking up a tray and walking through the buffet of spiritual options and you deciding what you are in the mood for. Yeah, I'll I'll take a little bit of that gospel of grace. That smells really good. Oh Yeah, I'll, I'll take a little, give me, give me a scoop of the prosperity gospel. I'll, I'll take some of that. Give me a side of, of self-help. I'll take some of that. You know, I, my, my physician told me that I need to kind of back away from the Bible as my authority. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't really have a taste for that. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Mm, you know, I, I, no, you know I'm, I'm just really not in the mood for that. And so if we're not careful, what we end up doing is becoming the arbiters of what is truth. And we end up saying that our faith in God is what we are in the mood for as we walk through life with the tray of religious options. And Paul says to all of us who have ears to hear, to add to the gospel is to subtract from authentic faith. There is no other gospel. When we are beholden, to endless openness, we are actually deserting the very God of the gospel. Four questions, two we've answered here. The first question being, who is Paul addressing? The second question is, who are they deserting? The third question is, how are they deserting God? Verses six through nine answers this question, but the rest of the book of Galatians is going to flesh out this answer. So you see here that they've turned to a different gospel. Paul says, listen, there's no other gospel here, but you're turning to a false teaching. If you want to write in your margin of your Bible, you're going to flesh this out at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5, which we'll get to. You're going to flesh this out at Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11, which we'll get to. This morning, I want to summarize what's occurring as the false teaching that they're deserting God and turning to. They were false teachers that had come into the region of southern Galatia to the churches that Paul had planted and said, hey, you need to believe in Christ alone. You need to believe in faith alone. And you need to add to Christ alone and circumcision. Christ and circumcision. Faith and the observance of spiritual days, Christ plus the observing of of, of Jewish festivals. And so the Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone had been uh, cut off and had been replaced with Christ plus, Christ plus, faith plus. And so Paul stops and says, no, adding to the gospel, all your pluses here, although they might be good pluses, they might be good and helpful things to add to them ultimately perverts the truth of the gospel, and it becomes a false gospel. Let let me illustrate it this way. It's mid-September. It it feels like the fall, doesn't it? It's only 185 degrees, uh, you know, in Alabama fall here. So it's a great time to go to a football game and sweat at a football game. So eventually it's going to turn cooler, and you're going to begin to make 
family plans. What are we going to do for Thanksgiving? Who's coming to our house? Whose house are we going to? What's going to be the menu, et cetera, et cetera? Are we going to go to Nikki's West or not go to Nikki's West? So, so you'll make those decisions. Now just imagine, just imagine you're watching the Food Network and there is this contest that you can enter into that gets you a full Thanksgiving spread prepared by none other than Rachel Ray. Rachel Ray, her entourage, are going to bring all the food. They're going to help prepare it, and they're going to do it in your house. You can invite your family. You can invite your friends. It's going to be a 30-minute Thanksgiving special. Does this sound fun to anybody in this room right here? Okay, so you win. You have the zaniest entry. Your family does this thing. It gets the attention of the producers. And before you know it, Rachel Ray and all of the Food Network entourage are knocking on your door. And boy, what a spread. I mean, everything that you can imagine for Thanksgiving is there before you. Anyone with any issue, with any type of food, they've got this this plethora of options. It's 11.42, and I'm talking a lot about food this morning right here. So, (laughs) So you sit down. And you taste the cornbread dressing. And you say, I like this gravy, but I really think this gravy is missing a little bit of flour. You go to the pantry, you go back to the big bowl of dressing, I mean, of gravy, and you put just a cup of flour on top of it. You get to the pecan pie. And you say, boy, this pecan pie is really, really good, but it's missing something. I think it's missing about a half a cup of sugar and about a half a stick of butter. So you go back to the pecan pie, you pour the sugar on top of it, you get the butter, and you slather it on the top of it right there, and you say, it is finished, it is done. Now, what would anybody think about somebody doing that to a prepared meal, this meal that is free to you, it's a gift to you? What would we think about that? Well, we think this is absolute insanity. What you're doing by... Adding to this completed and finished meal is you're actually distorting it more than that. You're ruining it. Because it's a complete meal. And so what Paul is saying here is, is that the meal of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is complete. Think about Jesus on the cross. What, What were some of the last words that were uttered upon the cross? It is halfway done. I'll meet you halfway if you meet me halfway. I've done my part. Now it's time to do your part. No. What does Jesus say? It is is finished. It is a complete gift to you and to me. And Jesus isn't waiting on us to add to it anything. It is finished. And that's why Paul is so serious here. That's why in verses 8 and verse 9, he has this refrain. He says, with absolute seriousness, he says, If an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches another gospel, may that person, that angel, be cursed. If I, or or Barnabas, or anyone else came to you and preached another gospel, may that person be cursed. The repetition of that word curse in the original language in the New Testament is actually a word that is anathema. It has an Old Testament background to it, which was an item that was uh, consecrated to God for complete destruction. Why so serious, Paul? What Paul is saying here is that someone who preaches and adds to the gospel message, may that person be cut off from the very mercy and love of God. Why so serious? Because souls are at stake. 
and the assurance of one's salvation isn't based upon what you need to do, what you should have done, what you could have done, or is it based upon what Jesus has done? Paul understands the importance of that. We should understand the importance of it. He will come back to this theme again and again. Four questions, three of of them we've asked and answered. How are they deserting God? Who is Paul addressing? Who are they deserting? Final question, where should they turn? And parenthetically, where should we turn? If this is the false gospel that he's saying, don't turn to yourself, don't turn to your works, then the question is, where should we turn? Notice again in verses 6 through 12, notice the refrain of Christ, of Christ, of Christ. Do you see that? In the Bible, verse 6, it is the grace of Christ. Verse 7, it is the gospel of Christ. Verse 10, servant of Christ. Verse 12, revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? With this repetition, he's saying, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look to what Christ has accomplished on any person's behalf that would trust him by faith. Jesus Christ is the only one who can set you free from your sin. You can't do that. Quit looking to yourself and look to your Savior. Christ is the only one who can grant you eternal life. You can't do that. Don't look at yourself. Look to him. He is the only one who can promise you abundant life now and eternal life then. Don't look to yourself. Look to him. So where do we turn? Who do we look to? Well, of course, we sing this. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I, we stand. In Christ alone, he is our hope. In Christ alone, he is our hope. In Christ alone, he is our hope. Where are you? Who are you? What are you putting your hope in? A couple weeks ago, I was in Fairhope, Alabama. There's a friend of mine who's the pastor down that area, and they do these Monday night services. And so Danielle and I had the privilege of preaching one Monday night. Lovely town. We love Fairhope and loved it for 20 years or so. We lived in Mobile. We'd always get away to Fairhope, and so it's always a pleasure, privilege to be able to go back down in that area. I was preaching a message from Mark's gospel. It came to a similar point. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. A a gentleman came up to me afterwards and he said, I'm 87 years old and I want to tell you a story about my mother. He said, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. My mother actually never took me to church. I became a Christian before she became a Christian. But at the age of 63, he told me, she had always worked in the same laundromat. And the customers were regular customers. They would come in and out of the laundromat. And oftentimes they would get in gospel-centered conversations. She would have nothing to do with it. Oh, she was cordial. She was likable in this small Alabama town. But ultimately she, she pushed away any kind of sense to look to Jesus for her hope until the diagnosis came. She 
received a terminal diagnosis. The little town knew about this. There was that uh, sweet lady who had come in many times, talked to her about church, talked to her about her faith. And it was in that moment with that diagnosis that there was a divine-centered conversation where the Spirit of God began to draw her. And she asked this elderly gentleman's mother, who was 63 years old, what hope do you have in the face of death? And she said, I hope, I hope I've been good enough. So this patron of years looked at her and said, good enough is an okay strategy for life, but it is a dead-end strategy when you're facing death. And at the age of 63, in that laundromat that she had worked in for years, in that moment, she turned from herself, her striving, her effort, her work, and she accepted the free gift by faith and the finished work of Jesus. At the age of 63, she turned her life to Jesus. And do you know, it's never too late Turn away from yourself and your striving and your doing, whether you're 63 or 6 years old, whether you're 12 or 25, whether you're 25 or 37, whether you're 88 years old and you got a lot of good behind you, it's not enough when you come before a holy God and your sinful self is there before Him. Where will you turn? Let me give you who you will turn to. When Satan accuses you and says, there's no way you've been good enough to ever grant and ever earn to go to heaven, you can turn to Satan and you say, you're exactly right. I haven't been good enough. You're exactly right. I've made mistakes. I've gone down the wrong paths. I've said things that I've regretted. I've done things that I wish I didn't. But guess what? My hope is not in me. My hope is in Jesus Christ who has died for me. Where are you putting your hope? Self or the one who desires to be your Savior? Turn from self. Trust in his finished work. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you praying. Thank you for sending your son to die a death, to be raised from death, ascended to the right-hand throne of the Father, to say it is finished. Thank you that you are not waiting on us to do our part, but you call us to, to turn, to turn from self and trust fully in that finished work of your son. I pray for any person today who thinks that they can be good enough, pray enough, give enough, go to church enough, be a good person. Our goodness is not enough. We need, we need the sacrifice of your son. Thank you that that provision has been made once and for all. And thank you that today we can turn from our striving to fully bask in the glory of your Son, 
our Savior. I pray for any person that's here today that's never trusted you as Savior. May today be the day that the Holy Spirit draws him or her to you, no matter the age, no matter the season of life. May any person that is resting in their own doing repent, turn, and trust. May that be the work of your Spirit and the hearts of any person here that is not sure of where their hope resides. Where is their hope found? So we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.